Well, welcome again, everyone, and Shabbat Shalom. And, um, welcome to everybody in YouTube land and podcast land. You know, y'all didn't get to hear the music, but is that awesome? I mean, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that the church is going to be presented as a pure and spotless bride. How cool is that? Why? Because we're clothed with his righteousness. Not because we're so awesome. And not because he just owes us so much. But we're clothed by his righteousness. And we're going to talk a little bit about brides. And we're going to talk a little bit about mercy that was mentioned in the song before that. And we're going to do, of course, an Old Testament, a, ton of, uh, a passage from the Tanakh, and then we're going to move it into the New Testament to see what Yeshua himself and Paul tell us. So it's called, I will have mercy. Because after all, he is all merciful, right? God's nature is he's all merciful, but he's also all just, and he's also all holy. And nothing that's not holy can approach him. This is why our parents, our remote parents, Adam and Eve, took one bite of an apple each, and we have all the problems that we have today. We get sick, we get old, our bodies fall apart, our minds fall apart, we get bald, we get various diseases, and why does that happen? Because he could not overlook what we would look at as a pretty minimal sin. I mean, come on, a bite of an apple. But if he overlooked that, he would be violating his own nature because his nature is that he's all just, so there has to be justice. And he's all holy, so there has to be holiness. But he's also all loving and all merciful. So all these things come together in Yeshua, in Jesus who comes as the God-man to live the perfect life that we can't live, by his blood, atonement's made for sin. We're clothed with his righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And here we are, a pure and spotless bride, even though we're a mess. Like you always hear me say, no one goes to more i never been to a church that was pure and spotless. And I don't think any of you guys have either. <laughs> Imagine if we were all stuck in this room for a week and nobody was allowed to leave. How long would it take before somebody over here would be arguing with somebody over here and somebody over there would be arguing with somebody over here and somebody would be saying, oh, she better shut up. I'm sick of her. And you, he better shut up because he it wouldn't take long, probably a couple hours. Certainly by morning, <laughs> because all of us are defective. So, but he has mercy. So we're going to go to Isaiah 54, which interestingly comes right after Isaiah 53. <laughs> Where's Jordan? Well, that was pretty, well, some people laughed. That was pretty good. But, you know, Isaiah 53 is such a well-known chapter, the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant. It's the only passage in the prophets that is never read in the synagogue. And you can confirm that with your Jewish friends. 
Never read in the synagogue because it's such an unbelievable description of somebody who's being brutalized and just is so brutalized that you can't even recognize him as a man anymore. But we're healed by that somehow. So the rabbis say, we don't read that in the synagogue because we can't understand it. And I used to say to my Jewish friends, and I've said it to quite a few rabbis, I can explain it to you if you'd like. And then they get angry. Because this is about, of course, it's about Yeshua as the suffering servant. They even call Yeshua the crucified one, kind of sarcastically. Sometimes they call him the pierced one, kind of sarcastically. Usually they call them by another name, which is very blasphemous, and I'm not going to say it or translate it. But it's only one letter different from his name in the English transliteration. So Isaiah 54. Now, as you know, Isaiah has all this unbelievable prophecy, all this unbelievable unfolding of the whole plan of salvation, and he's writing 700 years before Yeshua was even born. I mean, you talk about a prophet. He's writing 700 years before anything of this is going to be fulfilled. But he's also writing to a people that are involved in sin and idolatry, that are crying out, that God is forsaking them. So he's writing for his people, but he's also foretelling Messiah. So verse 4, do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. I mean, how, people, how many people here could stand up and say things that they've done in their past that wouldn't make them ashamed now to tell anybody? Probably every single person who's here, right? Anybody not doesn't fall into that category? Everybody falls into that category. I mean, if we told everybody what all our past sins were, it would be embarrassing. It would be shameful. Don't worry, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Come on, that was pretty funny. Because I don't want to hear all your sins and you don't want to hear all of mine. So, But you can, you can imagine. He says, do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Now, keep in mind, we're the bride of Christ. It says, you're not going to remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. This is written 700 years before Yeshua is even born. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Wait a minute. Your maker, your creator is your husband. Wait a minute. The Lord of hosts is his name. Adonai Sabaoth. Adonai Elohim Sabaoth, the God of hosts. This title, Lord of hosts, is used, I think, a handful of times in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh. And I'm not sure if it's even used in the New Testament. probably is. But it's not used a lot through the whole scripture. But here's one of the uses. So the God of hosts is his name. In other words, he's the God of the hosts of heaven. We don't know how many angels there are, but there's myriads and myriads. The Jews didn't have numbers for 
didn't have names for big numbers. That's why he says, you know, he's like the fairest of 10,000 because 10,000 was an unimaginable number to them. Or he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. A thousand was a huge number. They didn't even have a word for it. But when the Greeks came, they introduced the word myriad, which was 25,000. So when they said there were myriads and myriads of angels, there's hundreds of thousands of angels. Well, he's the Lord of them all, the hosts of heaven. And your Redeemer, Hebrew word is what? Goel. It refers to the payment that you make to buy a slave or the payment that you make to make ransom for somebody. He pays that. Goel. He pays that. You're a slave to sin. He pays the ransom. He pays your bail. He pays your penalty. Go out. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Who's that? We've been waiting for him since Genesis 3.15. He's going to come. He's going to crush Satan's head. Satan's going to nip at your heel. You're going to crush his head. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's called the God of all the earth. So the creator, who's now your husband, who's the God of all the hosts of heaven, is the redeemer. He's going to pay your penalty. Can you imagine this? That's why I always say, if you don't think about the cross 20 times a day, you don't get what happened there. So he's the Holy One of Israel, and he's God of all the earth, but he's your husband and he's your redeemer. He's the go out. He paid the price to get you out of jail. Is essentially what this means. He paid the ransom because you were kidnapped into the demonic world because you were living in sin. He pays the bail for that. This is written 700 years before Jesus Yeshua was even born. 700 years. For the Lord has called you. Whoa. He's called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused. You see all these bridal paradigms that are used. He's called you like a forsaken woman, like a grieved young wife. Says your God, for a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercy, I will gather you. I was mad when you were living in that life of sin. I could have wrath against you, and I had that wrath. But now, I'll have great mercy if I gather you. I'll have great mercy on you if you come. Now, we know if you don't come, then you're going to have the wrath because he is all just. And when you die and you don't know Yeshua and he hasn't, you haven't accepted his forgiveness and you haven't repented of what you've done, you haven't been forgiven, he doesn't say, oh, well, you know, some people do, some people don't, but it's all good. You're okay. He's okay. She's okay. No. Then the justice comes. So great mercies, I'm going to gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. 
Lord, all capital letters, is Yahweh. It's God's name. We might say Hashem. We can say Yahweh because we can also call him Abba. We can call him Daddy. Isaiah wouldn't have called him Daddy. They won't say the word Yahweh. It's unpronounceable, not worthy to say We're not worthy to say it, but he's our Abba now. But that's another story we won't get into. So Yahweh, God, is your redeemer. But wait a minute. I thought I had to keep 613 laws to be saved. Yes, you do. So if you want to save yourself, if you want to earn your salvation, go to it. Keep all those laws. Otherwise, I'm going to be your redeemer. Now, nowhere, well, I shouldn't say that. In, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, if you're living in a covenant that is only law, this doesn't make any sense. Because how can he be your redeemer if I don't keep the law? That's the question, right? That's the question. So Yahweh, God himself, I am that I am, I am who I am, I am, I'm going to pay your ransom. So this is right after 53. He was writing about exiles. You know, the people were exiled by the Assyrians. They were exiled to Babylon. In 70 AD, they were exiled through the whole world till 1948. I mean, in just about our lifetime, I wasn't quite born in 1948, but essentially in our lifetime, we've seen Israel reestablished as a nation. We've seen Jews from all over the world going back there right after six million of them were murdered by the Nazis. Can you imagine going into Auschwitz in 1944 and saying, hey, you guys, in four years, there'll be a state of Israel, and God's going to start building up the state. They would have said, dude, what are you talking about? We're in a concentration camp. They're going to kill us here. Four years later, three years after the war ended, there's a state of Israel. It's prophetic history, right? So this he's talking about exiles, but it applies to everyone. And it applies to us that were exiled in sin. We were all exiled in sin. You can't be here in the holiness if you're an unrepentant sinner. Right? Nothing holy can approach him, he says. That's pretty serious. Well, how am I going to be holy? Keep the law. But how, I already just blew it eight times today. And tomorrow's not going to be any better. Maybe I'll get down to just blow it at six times tomorrow. But I'm still guilty. But he says, I'm going to pay the price for that. I'm going to take you out of your exile, bring you back, and your disgrace is going to be gone. When the people came back from Babylon, they had been disgraced because they worshipped idols. The priests were worshipping idols. The people were worshipping idols. When they got to Babylon, they didn't worship the Babylonian idols. Remember, the kids went in the fire rather than bow down to the statue. Because you can't bow down to statues. 
It's a commandment. The kids went into the fire rather than violate the law. When they came back to the land, there was no more idolatry that's described. At the time of Jesus, there was no idolatry going on in the temple. They were ashamed. They were punished. They came back and said, we're not going to do that anymore. They did other stuff, of course, but they weren't going to do the idols anymore. So their disgrace is going to be gone. And he's going to come back with mercy. With mercy, he's going to bring the exiles back. The Jews were in diaspora for 1,900 years before 1948. He starts bringing them back to the land. That's Aharetz Israel, the land of Israel, the land that was promised to Abraham. He starts bringing them back there. A little before 1948. But in 1948, it went with, you know, earnestness. It got serious. So he returns with his mercy. So after sorrow and rejection comes joy and comfort. You're living in an exile of sin. You come to Yeshua. You confess your sins. You repent of what you've done. You say, I'm going to follow you. You're my Lord and Savior now. Joy comes. Comfort comes. I mean, the day that you met Jesus, didn't you kind of go, oh, I felt like a 100-pound boulder got taken off my back. It's exactly what I felt. And I thought, wow, I've never felt like this in my life. It was such a great feeling. And I could have said, like everybody else, hey, I never killed anybody. You know, imagine going to your final judgment as a non-believer saying, hey, I, Lord, I never killed anybody. I mean, don't I get some points for that? Well, if you could be saved if you don't kill anybody, that'd be great, because then almost everybody would be saved. But this doesn't work that way. You can't, like, hope for the best. I don't need the Jesus stuff. I don't have to repent. I don't have to go to him. I don't have to worry about that. You know, when I die, I'll just hope for the best. Ooh. I mean, there's probably people that think that way, right? I used to think that way. Well, you know, I'll deal with it then. <laughs> no. You know, maybe when I'm on my deathbed, you know, somebody like John will come and say, dude, you need Jesus and you need him right now. <laughs> but you go from rejection to joy and comfort because it says your reproach is going to be removed like a barren woman. You know, in ancient times, if a woman couldn't have a baby, that was considered a curse. Right? They were called barren. Even Gabriel says to Mary about Elizabeth, you know, who was her cousin, and she was older. And Gabriel said, you know, Elizabeth, who was thought to be barren, is in her sixth month. Sarah's called barren. I mean, she, you know, she was like, how old was she when she conceived Isaac? She was probably in her 80s. I mean, he was born, Abraham was 90, was 100. So Sarah was no spring chicken either. The book of Hebrews says Sarah, Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead. That's a pretty snotty thing to say. They were as good as dead. And they had a baby. So he said, you were like a barren woman. There's no fruit. Right? Fruit. You're supposed to bear fruit. You know, when John the Baptist calls those religious guys 
a brood of vipers. You know, if you repented, you know, you're supposed to bear fruit. If you don't bear fruit, you cut the tree down, you throw the tree in the fire. It was an agricultural society. You didn't plant trees just to make, just because they looked nice. You would plant them so you could get fruit. If it didn't bear any fruit, you said, well, I'm not keeping this tree around. We use it for firewood. <laughs> so you went through an orchard, you pruned it, you took care of it, no fruit, okay. So no fruit. A barren woman didn't produce a child. So that was considered like no fruit. It was considered a curse. So he compares you to a barren woman. You're not bearing fruit, you're exiled. Because when you're in sin, that's what you're doing. You're not producing fruit. Oh, sure, you're helping people here and there. Hey, before I was a believer, I used to buy people groceries and I would drive them home and I would do. But I was doing it just for humanitarian reasons. I never had to drive John home because he was pretty self-sufficient. But... <laughs> so the church, of course, is the bride of Christ, the bride of the Messiah. Isaiah talks about that. Yeshua talks about that. Paul talks about that a lot. There's a bridal paradigm that goes through the whole scripture. Israel was his bride in the Tanakh, in the Old Covenant. Look through your Bible and you'll find the only place that God calls a harlot is Israel. Doesn't call any other people harlots. You know why? Because he's married to them. And when they go after other gods, they're being unfaithful in that marriage. You know, you read the first few chapters of Jeremiah, it's mind-boggling. He says they commit adultery on every green hill, under every tree. They sit by the side of the road waiting for the next lover to come by. They have the brow of a prostitute, which means they don't even blush. They're not even repentant of what they're doing. The church is the bride of the Messiah, the bride of Christ. We shouldn't be going after other stuff. We shouldn't be forsaking the marriage vows, so to speak. Oh, well, you know, I go to church, but, you know, my next door neighbor does this cool stuff with the, you know, Reiki and stuff. So, you know, I've been going over there too, and we've been doing some meditating, and, you know, that's been, well, you're following a different, lover, but you're married to him. Israel was the bride. He's the creator, he says. He's the Lord of hosts. He's Adonai Sabaoth, but he's our husband. It talks about intimate covenant, right? We throw around the words covenant all the time. A covenant and a contract are different. The closest thing in humanity to a covenant is marriage. Marriage is a covenant. That's different than a contract. Of course, in our day, you know, it's all become perverted and you say, well, we got a prenuptial agreement. So if we split up, you know, I keep my stuff, she keeps her stuff. Everybody, no, it's supposed to be a covenant, not a contract. You know, and somebody once said, the difference between a covenant and a contract when it comes to human relationships is like the difference between a marriage and a prostitute. When you go to a prostitute, you make a, you make a contract. 
when you're married to somebody, you're in a covenant. It's a whole different setup. So the Redeemer is the Holy One. He's the only Holy One. There is no one beside him, says in Deuteronomy, says in Isaiah, says I'm sure other places. There's none beside me. It's not like he says, I'm the head God, and, you know, another God over here who's not as powerful as I am, but, you know, he's kind of a God, and then there's one over here who's, you know, kind of a God, but I'm the head God. He says, there's nobody beside me. He says, the gods of the Gentiles are just statues that they created. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. You know, in Isaiah, it says, you know, somebody goes into the woods, cuts down a tree, cuts it in half, and with half the tree, they put the wood in the stove and they cook their meals. They put the wood in the fireplace and warm their house. And with the other half, they fashion an image. They nail it to a table and say, this is our God. And God implies through Isaiah, how ridiculous is that? In Jeremiah, God says, they, they, they look at a stone and say, this is my father. I mean, because this was what the, our pagan ancestors did, right? So he's the only holy one. He's the holy one of Israel. He's the only mediator, capital M. Yeshua is the only mediator. First Timothy chapter 2. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Mediator, capital M. When you study Torah, when you study some of the other books, you see these prefigurements of people like Moses and Aaron and, well, before that, Joseph and then David. You see these like people who become mediators that stand between God and the people. Well, that's what Yeshua does. He's the eternal high priest. He's the eternal sacrifice. He's the eternal mediator. There are no other mediators. Right? Right. So he's not only the God of Israel, it says, but he's God over the whole earth. The whole earth. The nations, the goyim, the Gentiles. That's us. The division breaks down. The partition breaks down, Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. In his flesh, Yeshua breaks down the partition between the two, making one new man. There's not a Jewish body of Christ and a Gentile body of Christ. There's one body. So he's God of all the earth, Gentiles included. Now, when Isaiah would have written this, People would have said, dude, what are you talking about? Gentiles are never going to be involved with this. Well, as a matter of fact, they were. Almost right off the bat. Acts 10, read about Cornelius. You know, even before in the Gospels, you know, the Roman guy who financed the synagogue. You know, he wants Jesus to heal somebody. He says, oh, I'm not even worthy that you come under my roof. You can do it from here. And he says, wow. I haven't found faith like this in Israel. The Gentile woman who's crying out 
And he's ignoring her because she's a Gentile. And finally he says to her, your faith has made everything possible that I just did for you. So the partition breaks down. So you're like a woman forsaken. You're grieved. And you know, when you realize your sin and you realize what you are and you realize how you stand and you realize that you stand condemned and you encounter Jesus, you know, it's, there's like a joy and a grief that goes along with that. Because part of you says, wow, I feel so great. This 100-pound rock got taken off my shoulders. And then you say, oh, man, I can't believe I've been living my life like that. I can't believe I was doing that stuff. I'm not going to do that stuff anymore. I have metanoia now. I'm walking this way, but now I'm walking this way. So, you know, it goes back to um, um, in Zechariah. I just did a YouTube on it last night, if you go to the YouTube channel. Um, in Zechariah 12.10, you know, Paul tells us in Romans that all Israel will be saved. Zechariah 12.10 says the Spirit's going to be poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They're going to look on him whom they've pierced. I mean, how much more graphic could it be? What could Zechariah be talking about? Who are they going to look at that they've pierced? There's only one person that they're going to look at who's been pierced. Hello? Only one. And it says they're going to mourn like you mourn for an only son. Now, why are they going to mourn? Because they're going to be happy they see Messiah. They're going to say, oh, I can't believe we missed this for 2,000 years. They're grieved, but they're happy. And so there's this, like, I don't even know what you call that emotion. It's different than when we met them, because they're the chosen people. So he hid his face from them because of rebellion. like he did with us. He knew we were there. He knew, you know, that someday we were going to come around or hit his face for a while because of rebellion. Sometimes he seems to withdraw. If you study the Song of Songs, you see the bride. Sometimes he push, pull, pulls back from her because she needs to be disciplined. She needs to be you know, kind of pulled together. And she says, where did he go? Where's my beloved? Has anybody seen him? And she goes running around the city. Where's my beloved? And then he comes back to her and she goes, oh, so glad you're here. I thought you were gone. You know, how many times do we go, you know, and we fall into some kind of sin and we say, well, now he doesn't love me anymore. Nah, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go to church Sunday. I'm not going to the Bible study. I'm not going to, because now he doesn't, you know, he loved me before, but now he doesn't even like me. So in the Song of Songs, he seems to withdraw for a while, but it's, Isaiah says it's for a short time. He says there's a little bit of wrath for a short time. And we know other places it says he's slow to anger. And he's always willing to give mercy. Because after all, that's the plan of salvation. So he's going to bring them comfort. He's going to regather them. Whether it's Israel being regathered from exile after the Babylonian exile in 1948, or if it's us as sinners, 
that he gathers us back. Because now we've come back, and like the Song of Songs says, now we understand that we're the bride. Because, you know, when the book starts out, the bride is like kind of infatuated with him, but doesn't really know what to make of it. So he says, oh, come on, let's go out and let's go do stuff. And the bride says, well, I don't know. I kind of like it just being here. You know, I'm laying on the couch. I'm watching TV. I'm having something to eat. You know, if you want to go do, you know, you go ahead and do it. But at the end of the book, she's saying to him, hey, let's go out and call people. Let's go out and check the fruit that's blooming. Let's go out and see how the harvest is doing. Because now she's matured as a believer. If you notice any of the song of songs, you got to check it out. I have an audio version of it on the Gift of Grace website. But So he regathers them. Because, of course, this everlasting kindness, it says it's from him. It calls him the Redeemer, the Goel, because he has mercy and he has grace. And it's not because the people were so awesome. It's not because he decides to save us because we're so awesome. And he doesn't say, you know, that guy down there, I never knew till today how awesome he is. You know, I got to save him. Look at the guy's amazing. No, we have no merits. Paul says, we don't have any merits of our own. We have some. But certainly not enough to save ourselves. Not enough to even like, you know, barely save ourselves. So it's not by their merits. He regathers them. He pays their ransom. He pays the penalty. So in the new covenant, this, the new covenant is prefigured in all of this. What Israel went through pointed to the new covenant. Because Yeshua in, five, in John 5.39 says, all the scriptures are about me. All the scriptures testify of me. All the scrolls are about me. He doesn't say, well, you know, just starting in Matthew, it's about me. Before that, you know, it's all that Old Testament stuff. I can't believe, nobody goes to more churches than I do, and I can't believe how many church leaders, pastors, priests, whatever, what a pathetic knowledge of the Old Testament people have. I, 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 I don't even know what to say. I, I, I just sometimes just sit there with looking at him going, how can you not know this? And I'll tell you why, because nobody wants to study the Old Testament. Because there's all those names, all those battles. God was really mean. We want to start in the New Testament where God's really nice. You know, there was a heresy in the very early church that said the God of the Old Testament was not the same God as the God of the New Testament. That the God of the New Testament somehow put the Old Testament God in his place and kind of did away with him, and then everything got better. Whew. So it's prefigured. And of course, it applies to us because all of this is everlasting. Same chapter. For the mountain shall depart and the hills will be removed, but my kindness will not depart. You know, Peter says all of this is going to be destroyed by fire. Everything, all of this is going to be destroyed by a horrible fire. 
But his word is not going to be destroyed. He's not going to be destroyed. We're not going to be destroyed. This stuff's going to be destroyed. I hope it's tonight. All this stuff is going to be burned up. But he says, the hills will be gone. The mountains will be gone. But my kindness is still going to be here. My peace, my true shalom, is still going to be here. And who says that? The Lord, all capital letters, Yahweh, says this. It's not Isaiah saying this. It's not Joe, his assistant. It's not Eli, his other assistant. It's God saying this. None of this is going to be removed. Let's go to Romans 8. Woo! Probably the most awesome chapter in the whole Bible. If you've ever read Romans 8, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak, was the law weak? Through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The law is holy. Nothing is wrong with the law. The problem is in our flesh. The law seems weak. I can't do it. I don't, actually don't want to do it. I have Adam's nature. It tells me, I don't want to do that. I don't have to do that. Nobody's my boss. I do whatever I want. Right? That's how we like to live. So the loss weak through the flesh. So God fixed it by sending his own son. Own son. Own son. Own son. Not some random nice human being, like some people think. Not some great philosopher. Not some great teacher. Not Buddha. Not any of those other guys. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked just like us. Right? I never follow all of you people around. But one thing I know is that you're all sinners. Right? And if you followed me around, it wouldn't take long to realize, so am I. Why? Because we're Yeshua had a human body. He was 100% human. He looked like everybody else, but without the sin. So he looked like sinful flesh, but of course had no sin. So he condemned sin in his flesh. The cross, of course. So that the righteous requirement of the law could be fulfilled in us. We couldn't, there's not enough lambs in Ohio to take care of our sins. Yes? No? He takes care of it. He condemns sin in his flesh. So what happens? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Nothing's going to separate you from him. This is not done by the law. This is done because he sent his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So there's mercy. There's a bridal relationship, both Israel and with the church. We're going to be presented when all of history is wrapped up. And I wish it could be tonight. But when all history is wrapped up, we're going to, he's going to present the church to his father as his pure bride. The father's made a bride for his son. The son says, here's my bride. Yeah, you know, they're, I know they look like a mess. Like that first song said, you know, he died for the nations gathered before him. So from Isaiah to now, it doesn't change. And if he doesn't come back for another hundred years, it won't change then. If he doesn't come back for another thousand years, oh, I can't imagine that. It won't change then. If he comes back while we're here, it'll be awesome. We can just go up and... But the whole plan goes through and doesn't stop. Whew. So if you go to this giftofgraceministries.org, if you look under... I think it's under a thing called teaching. You'll see a whole commentary on the Song of Songs that I did a few years ago. If you have never read it, it's kind of hard to understand, but you can check it out. So let's wrap it up.